This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. While the concept of free expression in America has risen to new heights and a new fever pitch of debate, with everybody from our own president attacking media outlets in an almost authoritarian-sounding way, to even the America's Civil Liberties Union of ACLU defending the ability for neo-Nazis to march and protest in broad daylight, there has been a new player on the scene that has emerged as a focal point for the concept of free expression in the First Amendment in the United States, and that is the National Football League. Famously taking a knee, Colin Kaepernick, of the formerly of the San Francisco 49ers, kicked off an entire national dialogue, not around just police brutality and inequities in communities of color or underserved towns, but also in the very notion of being able to take a stand by taking a knee in expressing a voice and a protest during the national anthem. This week, with a recent ruling that would actually give the ability for the NFL and teams to penalize players that do that, we've got on American Enough an incredibly special guest, a former NFL player himself for the New York Jets and current leadership chair of the New York chapter of the NFL Alumni Association, Michael Faulkner. We talked through what free expression means, the ability for the NFL to weigh in on this despite constitutional concerns, and frankly, What's next for America's identity to free expression if we constantly are able to put guardrails on it just when someone doesn't like what we're saying? Make sure to join the podcast. Special guest with the NFL. Thanks for tuning in. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Seeking to end a political controversy that has embarrassed professional football, the National Football League's team owners this past Wednesday held that players could no longer kneel during the national anthem without leaving themselves open to potential punishment from their teams or having their teams face possible financial penalties themselves. But the league also said that the new policy would not force athletes to stand on the sideline during the anthem. It would give them the individual option of staying out of the picture, in the locker room, or any other place off-field during the pregame ceremony. Almost immediately after the passage of the new rule, questions arose about how it could be enforced. Now, while the policy is an attempt to find a middle ground, a pitch down the middle for a divisive issue that has shaken the country's most successful sports franchise for a couple of years now, starting when former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick knelt during the national anthem to protest police violence, now more and more the issue has come to bear in terms of not just the commentary on communities that the kneeling was standing to represent, but basic conversations around free expression and the First Amendment in America. Most recently this week, while there was an onslaught of media coverage for those that supported the NFL's decision and those that were opposed to it, multiple individuals, including Harvard Law and industry professor Benjamin Sachs, argued that the rules forced players in a way that violated certain amendments and labor laws, On the other side of the equation, a lot of members from the very communities that the kneeling standed to represent spoke out in support of the rule, stating that there are more constructive ways to actually detail the concerns faced and imposed upon communities of color or even among the disenfranchised. While there is no easy way to slice the issue, and while no matter who you speak to and no matter how passionate their support, this is never going to be a binary it does beg a very, very core question of American identity, and that's this changing of the guard of how public expression, free expression, something that's so core to who we've been as not only a democracy, but even since the birth of our country, how that gets protected at a time where new debates about checks and balances on that expression are coming to light. On the one hand, these debates and these tensions are as old as the country itself and date back since the very inception of the First Amendment. But on the other hand, with the rise of a litany of different media channels through which we can all express our voice, a variety of different media channels in which we could all chill our voice, and the tensions rising in terms of 
our own leaders, including the president, as well as other local leaders, from church leaders to individual community leaders weighing in on the matter, it really does beg the balance of understanding what is free expression in America and how are policies like those instituted by the NFL going to be able to facilitate a dialogue while they also try and enact new rules so that way the game can continue to be the game this country has loved. While not an easy question to tackle, joining American Enough today is Reverend Michael Faulkner, who has not only dedicated his life to serving God in his own community, but actually was an all-star football player having grown up in Washington, D.C., and played a few seasons with the NFL, including with the New York Jets. But extending far beyond just his uh, title claims in the National Football League, Michael has always been invested in the outgrowth of communities, whether it was pursuing leadership roles within his own ministry and church, whether it was moving his family to Times Square in New York City to run soup kitchens, or whether it was his own time to lean into politics. The very concept of community has been core to his upbringing, his life, and his ability to weigh in on matters both on and off the football field. Michael, thank you so much for joining American Enough today. Vikram, thank you, and I'm so glad that I qualify as American enough to join you in this very <laughs> important, important, important conversations. Absolutely, and we we recognize that that there's a lot of perspective you bring to this, um, not only as someone that continues to be involved with the NFL um, from a retired players chapter in New York, and not only as someone that played the game previously, but frankly as someone that pays attention to his own community. Um, tomorrow, as you know, the not just our individual communities where we happen to live, but the whole country at 3 p.m. on Monday on Memorial Day will actually pause for a moment of silence to honor those who have you know, fallen in uniform fighting for our flag. And while the heart of the NFL conversation has been about respect for that flag, I guess I, I wanted to open up the conversation by asking you, how do we appropriately allow the very sort of public debate and dialogue that the American flag represents while also attempting to show pure respect for it and not conveying any disrespect by not you know, going along with certain conventions that tend to come along with the national anthem. As someone that's always looked to invest in community, how do we both protect the growth and the need to address core issues in community while still respecting the purity of what that flag means for the country, not just during the national anthem of our football game, but particularly at a solemn time where we honor our troops around the country? Right. Well, that's a very important question, and uh, it, it's a uh, it's a detailed, not just a detailed question, but it's it's important. First, America has always required, demanded that we, as a republic, as the people of this country, be willing to protest because our not just our constitution but the very DNA, the very fabric of this country says that we will not stand, uh, we will stand against all powers, foreign and domestic, that threaten our constitution, that threaten our way of life. And our way of life is not just constantly challenging power, but constantly saying, we will say no to totalitarian authority. The authority of the American people is in the hands of the American people. And we can't abdicate that responsibility. We must take it and at times bear the the arms, as it were, of protest and, and democratic protest and democratic process of electing new officials and, and screaming loudly and, and proudly. And so while you know we we look at this in 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 terms of the NFL i look at these men as patriots i look at them as exercising their patriotic duty however i would not do that in that way in that regard i understand the need to express angst anger and and sometimes a a reflection and, and, and even a, 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 a difficult reflection on some of the things that are going on as an African-American, as an African-American spiritual community and political leader in my community of Harlem and New York and 
we're in the urban centers of our country. I know that we have problems and issues that must be addressed. However, I draw the line here. I will kneel in protest, and I will always stand for freedom. I will kneel in protest, and I will stand in freedom. That flag, regardless, it, as it waves, it represents freedom. And to me, it represents the last and the best hope that we have in the world for freedom from totalitarian authority. And it's important to know that men and women, as, as this, you know, to the Memorial Day as we set aside, that have laid their lives down and taken an oath of office, whether they have faced bullets or just taken an oath of office and, and, and you know, carried out the exercises of their duties honorably and do everything that we do as Americans on a daily basis to honor the civic responsibility and the engagement that we all love to enjoy. See, being American means that you, yeah, you reserve the right to protest. So in this workplace environment that happens to be one of the biggest stages in the world and one of the most significant entertainment mediums in the world, you know, NFL sports and some of the biggest, strongest men ever, when they cough, everybody wants to know, okay, what are you saying? You know, when they, you know, you know, they, they, they have a platform. And so the owners had a responsibility to say, okay, we need to engage this conversation. We need to figure this out. And I think the owners made a good decision in a very difficult environment, politically charged, not, you know, and I, and I, I don't want to, I want to run away from anything that the president might have to do with this. This is not about him. This is about the public, the ticket buyers and those who will, you know, those who will advertise. And it's about a, a hire for service for hire. You know, and you can't, there's nothing you can do to make me give up my rights as an American, you know, for, for money. There's, and these, these guys are not mercenaries. They're not fighting against America. But when you kneel, when the flag is being displayed, or, you know, you kneel when others are saluting the flag, you're saying, hey, there's something wrong with the flag or there's something wrong with America when actually we need to engage and be engaged passing tougher laws. We need to be engaged civically. We need to roll up our sleeves. Every one of these guys that's playing in today's game, most of them, I say everyone, most of them have their own foundations, their own nonprofit community uh, avenues to engage and to make the, the world a better place and to make a difference. I certainly am engaged in that and want to encourage them to continue to do that. And that's what I mean when I say stand for freedom. We have to stand up to do that. You can't do that taking a knee and simply, you know, saying, hey, th that, that somehow America is is broken. The brokenness of America are American people. In other words, when when we say America is broken, it's not the system, it's it's the ideals. The ideals are broken. The ideals require each American, each generation to constantly engage in a process of self examination and continual refinement and improvement generation after generation. I think that, you know, one one area that I'd love to double click on is what you mentioned in terms of the longstanding um, reputation for the NFL and, frankly, the players that make up any sports team in the NFL um, of community engagement. Um, it is certainly a tradition that whether you're an avid football watcher or you only tune in once a year to watch the commercials during the Super Bowl, um, it is very clear that the National Football League definitely has an ethos of giving back. And you see um, a lot of members of the league uh, during off-season and even during on-season uh, showing up for events and programming, um, whether it's for their local YMCA or whether it's Big Brothers, Big Sisters, or whether it's, frankly, joining some conversational protests about the state of policies in America. I'd love to little, learn a little bit more about 
the sort of mentality and thinking behind a player who decides to engage in that. Because in many respects, some who who maybe believe in the kneel would argue that is a form of of adding to that deliberative process you spoke of. But in other respects, we know, as you said, that you know they're they are employees and they are providing for higher work and services when that clock starts ticking um, with the opening snap um, or the opening kickoff. So from from your perspective, as someone that um, has held many hats over the years of community engagement, putting on your hat or rather your helmet of someone that was in the locker room with fellow NFL players and since taking off that helmet have, has maintained a community of NFL players in their retired state, um, what goes through the minds of a, of, a, of a player who decides, I want to make sure that as part of my own hustle here, whether I'm a household name or nobody knows who I am, that I'm going to make sure I show up for my community? Is there something unique to the dialogue or to the, to the spirit of the locker room that we, the, the fans or, or the bystanders, don't get to see that is informing that type of investment? Because I, I kind of wonder – if you could walk us through what is the conversation going on that's off camera? Uh, are, are players sort of respecting one another's decision to kneel or not kneel? And is it because there's a, a total understanding that they all come from communities that they want to see good economic outcomes for as well? Or do you think that this is something just core to the league guys, league's identity, irrespective of who the players are? <laughs> wow. Um broad, very, very broad question, and I, I, will, I will preface the answer by saying this. It's been a long time since I've been a player in the locker room. I played, you know, the, the last season I played in the NFL was 1982, and so that's a long time ago before most of these players, before all of these players who are playing now, who are currently playing, are, were born. Right. So, before millennials were even millennials. Before millennials were millennials, exactly. So I, to, to say, uh, if I were to say I understand the mentality of the locker room today uh, as I did you know, during my era, would, I would be a liar and a fraud. However, I will say I recognize a champion's heart. And these guys, in a highly competitive environment, they're paid well. I don't say that they're overpaid, but they're paid very well for what they do. They play a very dangerous game. They're champions. They're gladiators. They're warriors. And in a warrior mentality, you tend to lock arms with those on your team and those on your team. And they, you know, the group think or the, I, I don't want to even say peer pressure because they're, they're individuals. They're, they're very much individuals, yet they're, they're very much a team. The camaraderie in, in football is different than that of baseball or basketball or even hockey for that matter. And the room for divergence, in my assessment, if if things haven't, from a psychological perspective, the room for divergence isn't quite as broad as, you know, in other words, the room for rugged individualism, it's not as tolerated, you might say. Um, so when a player decides or when a team tries to have this dialogue and this debate, who wins the dialogue and debate and who decides how we're going to respond as a team. It's a very complex scenario. It's an extremely complex scenario. What I will say is that the, I think that the owners and the players, and, 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 and I know some of the behind-the-scenes conversations that have gone on during this offseason between leading groups within the players, the, the uh, social activists, and, and there, there's been a, a good amount of money that was set aside by the league to support grants from players who are involved in social activist activities, small grants, who are involved, you know, if a player will put up, the league will match whatever the player or the foundation, the player's foundation will put up matching that for social activist um, causes. That's a very, that's a good thing. Now, with regard to, <clears throat> is it okay to still protest? The answer is yes. I think, it, 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 of course it is, or to speak out, of course. But 
I think that we that rather that I would much rather see the conversation shaped around exactly what the moving forward is going to be. I'd like to see the attention being on what's what they're doing standing up as opposed to why they're kneeling because to 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 simply say I'm kneeling in support of black youth who are uh, disproportionately accosted and shot or disproportionately arrested and, you know, held without, you know, what, whatever those issues, and there are those issues, those issues or mass incarceration or any number one of a, so any number of, a, of, of social maladies, which by the way, we had an African-American president whom you worked for in the white house for eight years and to me, as an American people, he would have been the great champion. I mean, talk about a position of authority, a position of place, a position of conversation. And he tried on many occasions, numerous occasions, to have those conversations or, you know, and and got relatively little movement in terms of the American the people. I mean, we we still had the the same number of those incidents, and and even mass incarceration did not, you know, was not uh, stopped. You know, it continues to to be a, an ongoing issue. But when you have champions, when you have these gladiators, these the, these these men and women their wives and, and girlfriends, those those supporters who will say, hey, we're going to do something. We're going to champion this cause. We're going to improve education in schools. We're going to get involved in our local schools. We're going to be involved in our local juvenile detention facility. We're going to show up. We're going to be, we're going to matter a lot to the kids whose lives we can touch individually. I can tell you for a fact it will change the dynamic and the landscape. You know, I know from my own personal experience, I was involved in a program called Goals for Youth, that where we helped uh, young people set goals. And this was working with the rural young people in upstate New York. And it was a, it was a program that was sponsored by the NFL and several other different agencies, and it was a pilot program. It worked wonderfully because it was working with migrant workers children and 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 so forth it was it was a great program we actually lowered we increased graduation rates from 10% to like 80% of the kids just by helping them set goals i'm revamping that program i'm doing it right now myself with a school in the bronx right now no pay, you know, no grant i'm just showing up once a week and i'm involved in the lives of these 10 to 20 students, uh, they call them scholars, at the Hope Academy in the Bronx. I want to replicate this program nationwide through the NFL alumni chapters by having an NFL alumni be involved in the life of a school. It's a very simple, low-cost, high-impact way to make a difference. It's standing up for freedom. So, you know, I, I don't know if I, you know, uh, address the issue. It, it, it's it's very no, 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 difficult that's, that's... to step outside of the, the quote-unquote nomenclature or the culture. It's very difficult for a guy to say, hey, I don't support my brothers who are saying that there are problems. You know, especially, I, I mean, I, let, let me say this. White players who grow up in a rural environment who may not understand, man, they, they're, they're caught between the crosshairs because they're saying, well, wait a minute. I know these guys. These are good the, the teammates. These are good guys. I, I like these guys. So if they're saying there's a problem, I'm not black. Who am I to judge them? I'm going to stand with them just on the merits of their character and their their protests. I'm going to stand with them in protesting that because I don't like racism. As Americans, to be honest with you, none of us like racism. We We hate it. And yet, we, I don't want to say we tolerate it, but sometimes we even foster it. It's just part of some of the things that, some of the maladies that we have to continually work out and weed out. And when we see it, we have to say something and we just, just like, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace. Man, I mean, things have turned around in a dramatic way by exposing these people who were too big to fail. 
you know, and and, and now now exposing them. So if we can do the, the have that kind of chain reaction kind of movement, not just you know a witch hunt, but just kind of you know really to reach out and and say and do and actively participate and get other people and uh, you know involved you know yeah you know i mean i think it's a it's a really good point particularly when you kind of juxtapose it as you mentioned earlier with the actions of the former president barack obama or even others in their community because i think all too often many of us assume that to enact wide sweeping systemic change um that you you know have to be a superhero with a cape or you have to have you have to be a an elected politician who you know has a podium from which lots of people will take the time to tune into and and while those are important perches from which to opine on things um a lot of the most important action day to day comes down to what you mentioned sort of for lack of a better term these micro actions right um whether it is mentoring someone in your in your neighborhood who has not otherwise set goals for themselves or has not otherwise seen anyone that looks like him or her to um, you know reach for the stars in terms of new possibilities or whether it's working with a local community organization to you know register more um, uh, voters who happen to be from disenfranchised communities or whether it's speaking out about um, incarceration rates for uh, you know the length of time of gen- jail penalty for different kind of minor offenses including you know drug offenses all of these different aspects whether it's um, in terms of the access individuals have to education the access they may or may not have to mentors or advocates the uh, you know policies that may try and pull out certain communities from being able to access voting locations on election days or the you know disproportionate timelines of sentencing for folks that engage in some drug offenses versus other drug offenses all of these create these systemic challenges that feed in and probably inflame that racism that as you said we we've put up with but none of us like as a people and so you really do have to tackle it from a multitude of perspectives right even Barack Obama famously opining on Trayvon Martin saying that if he had a son, um, you know, that was arrested or shot at by the police, uh, he would likely look like Trayvon. And while that was a a jarring moment for all of America to hear, um, it doesn't necessarily, as you said, undo a lot of these systemic harms. So these micro actions in communities through the program like yours, or programs like others that we see in terms of just kind of shoe leather, walking the streets, engaging communities, even if you don't have a fancy title or a fancy grant, that's where change happens. And there's no doubt about that. I'm wondering if part of that, though, is simply raising awareness and attention. Um, Because I agree that starting the conversation only takes it so far. Uh, American identity and progress will only really realize be realized if you if you do something about it. Um, Is the Raising of attention, though, for some people, like you said, from a suburban community or a rural community or someone who might be a colored person or a black person themselves that hasn't experienced too much overt racism in their lives is simply saying like, hey, this might just seem like an empty gesture uh, or symbolic gesture, but I'm going to take advantage of this uh attention that people have on me for one hour every Sunday just to make this tiny point in hopes of starting a dialogue. Is that also a micro action worthy of a spotlight? Or do you think that detracts from the point of what you said in terms of standing up and getting something done? Um, yeah, I think, I think it does. I think it, it does make a difference. It, it does make a difference. We've got to do something. To sit quietly by on our hands and to say, you know, I, I have a friend that used to that used to say, it's never enough time to do it right, but there's always enough time to do it over. And I and I love that quote, you know, because it, the truth of the matter is, anything that you do that's moving in the positive in the right direction is going to change two things right away. It's going to change you, and it's going to change the community around you. And that those are powerful, powerful things. When I get involved in the life of someone else and, and their suffering and pick up their suffering and, and, and take on their burdens, I don't necessarily make their lives all the better. I'm not going to solve their problems. 
but I am going to become a better person for having taken that on, whether I fail or not. And maybe I do fail, but I'm going to fail quickly. I'm going to get better at doing better, at doing good, and to the point where I can make a difference. I'm, you know, in, in my age, I should be, quote, unquote, slowing down, but it seems that, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to be picking up. Things are going to be moving faster. It, it's, you know, for me, because now I, I have, you know, a voice in, in some national dialogues and national conversations like the NFL Alumni Association or uh, a group that I'm involved with in Philadelphia called the uh, Urban Hope, this, you know, the Urban Hope Center in, in Philadelphia, you know, which is, you know, it's a it's a micro ministry. They, they actually have uh, two ministries, one in Los Angeles and one in Philadelphia and helping them to expand it to national to national proportions. I'm I'm just as hard on the quote unquote the church, because I think religious leaders have failed as as you know as a religious as as christian leaders we in many cases have failed to show up in large enough numbers significant enough in changing the landscape of our communities and and yet we we are responsible for those communities in which our churches uh operate and meet and it's not just about where we meet to worship on sunday it's where we should be enacting and engaging our community on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know what I'm saying? It's mm, we've got yeah, to be absolutely. a regular part of the community. The, the the Bible says that we have to be salt and light. And the salt, in order for it to be effective, has to be out of the shaker. It's got to be in the fabric of the community. It's got to be in the fabric of the meat to make it taste different, to preserve it, to, to do what it says. And those are the things that Jesus wants us to do, we are instructed to do. And if we're not doing it, we are failing. And so, Vikram, I I engage people along that line to say, hey, you can make a difference right where you are by making a difference, taking a step forward. Now, with regard to the the guys in the NFL, they're getting constantly pulled on, tugged. For, now, this is, in, in quote-unquote, in their defense. They're constantly being asked, can you speak here? Can you speak there? Can you do this? Can you sign these autographs? Can you do this? Sure. And they're constantly yeah. doing good. They're constantly signing autographs every day in their life every day in their life someone's asking them to sign something it's it's just amazing they're, and they're, they're signing in a way they, they, they're not you know and they, these are authentic autographs that some unscrupulous people use to try to you know gain some financial you know benefit from or what have you so they're constantly being pulled at and and they don't have necessarily handlers professional some do but 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 even the professional publicists are looking to say, okay, I'm paid to help raise the profile of my client and to make sure that they get paid for their high visibility, you know, and they raise their visibility. So it's a catch-22. How do you now take this person who is, by in all rights, a celebrity and turn them into, excuse the expression, and this is no slur, like uh, kind of a Mother Teresa, you know, a benevolent uh, person, and, and I love Mother Teresa's writings and or Martin Luther King. I mean, I love those people who are who have the ability to just transcend their greatness by getting involved with day-to-day, normal, everyday people rolling up their sleeves and making something happen. It's difficult. It's complicated, but it begins with standing up for freedom. Yeah, and I and I I think that your point is well taken because it, it illustrates that um there are a number of actors who ought to feel the the you know the onus and not burden but sort of the the investment demand of the fact that they are either community organizers or have the 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 ear of the community and therefore they should stand up and play an active role um in conversations of you know inclusivity or equal pay in the workplace or racial inequality and that to your point um if i'm capturing this correctly extends far beyond just sort of 
what happens on the sidelines of a football game at the beginning and has much more to do with how do barbershops play a convening authority in communities? How do churches play a convening authorities in communities? How do public schools work with those local leaders and those maybe celebrity leaders and everyone else in between to make sure that outcomes sort of get refined and talked through in an appropriate way? Um, and, I, and I think that that notion of engagement, as you as you detailed it, um, whether it's through the Urban Hope Center or some of the work that you're you're doing in New York in the Bronx right now and hoping to scale across the country, that's where the real power of sort of getting past the dialogue around, you know, kneeling as a, a as a concept on its own um, and moving on to getting at the systemic root causes that are causing challenges and racial inflammations in our communities. That's that's really where the work ought to begin, and and that's where you're saying the dialogue ought to be predicated. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and one of the reasons that I stand, it's not because America is perfect, but it's because the American, I believe in the American ideal. And so when I see that, or when I hear that song, The Star Spangled Banner, I think of Francis Scott Key's words and the intentions. He wasn't saying America was perfect. In fact, there was one 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 uh, stanza in it, which he is actually kind of protesting some of the things that were happening and, and talking about it. But he's saying that this flag, as it waves, our opportunities for freedom continues to wave. And it's only as Americans who are American enough become engaged. You know, you and I, different party affiliations, different political points of view, love America. I can say that there are people who who disagree with me politically that love America as much as I do. I'm not going to try to say that just because someone disagrees with me on a major social issue or political issue that they're not American and that somehow they don't love America as much as I do. That's just not true. And so when when I see a guy kneeling for the Star Spangled Banner, I'm, you know, moved or vexed. You know, it, it, it bothers me a bit because I disagree with them. But I certainly would not support taking away their right to express their protests in their way. I, I just wouldn't take that take that right right away from them. Yeah, and, and I'm with you loud and clear because I think. At, at the end of the day, you know, to your point, the what's really kind of hopeful about American pursuit, and I, and I think this would be agreed upon, um, you know, whether it's me, um, as you mentioned, coming from one perspective, defending those taking a knee, um, or or someone else coming from a different perspective, saying that in that moment you can respect the what the kneel. Um, represents, but really you have to honor the flag in in the purity of what it stands for, despite those you know being two separate contentious point of views that maybe are in tension with one another. The biggest thing that we can help honor collectively with those different points of view is is sort of honoring the words of of MLK, and I know this is something that you know President Obama invoked a lot, which is this concept that the in the long arc of history. Uh, the arc of of uh, freedom bends towards, uh, or sorry, the long arc of history. I don't want to butcher this. Bends towards justice. You know, put another way, that we have a ability to have these trade offs of attitude, have have really intense disagreements about policy or even values, and yet by having that that tuffle, uh, sorry, that tiff uh, be, play out in a public domain, you're actually able to add more ideas to the marketplace of ideas, debate them, have a sort of public conversation, and then hopefully arrive at policies that are more inclusive and progressive for all. So whereas there may be those differences in opinion, at the end of the day, harnessing America's identity um, starts by acknowledging that that free expression is worth fighting for, but only insofar as we honor that free expression, even if it comes from points of view that we, we disagree with at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, and, and that was always that was always something that our predecessors in, in a generation ago, before the age of information, that was always something that was that every person, no, no matter what, you know, would always say, 
you know, except in during the McCarthy era, you know, which that was not that was not necessarily, you know, the the thing that, you know, everybody had to engage in, in groupthink and and be, you know, uh be, you know, kind of systematized to say think that this is what American means and I think that's the premise of of where you are with you know your with this podcast is saying hey what is it what does it mean to be American enough and who defines that you know who who sets those rules I I had a a notion uh, a, a few years ago and I wrote a piece called am I black enough which you know was addressed to the quote unquote civil rights leaders of that you know it was ten years ago or twelve years ago, fifteen years ago, whatever when I wrote the piece, you know that that somehow because I was a republican that right. that or you know somehow they questioned or I had a political leanings toward the Republican party, they had questions on my blackness, and I'm like, whoa, you cannot define me or how my identity or my knowledge of my racial history or my responsibility to my community. I refuse to allow you to define me based on your narrow perspective, you know, and so black enough, am I uh, American enough? I think it's, these are important questions that we've got, the, 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 you know, because we cannot allow others to define our patriotism except to say, am I going to do things that are going to help America move forward? Am I going to fight for the rights of freedom and justice for all Americans? Am I, you know, and I, I believe, I honestly believe that strong immigration reform, reform, not just saying border control, but immigration reform is part of that process. I believe very much in immigration in our country, and this is a this is off the subject that we're we're talking about today. But I believe very much that our country is built by immigrants and built on the whole notion of bringing in successive generations to share in the American dream. But there has to be a streamlined legal and ethical process by which everybody has access to that same American dream, and we can't just you know section it off to the wealthier which is which is what's happened you know we 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 you know uh, and and it almost uh you know it begs the question do we still believe in what's written at this at the base of the statue of liberty you know yeah and and i actually i i find that you know specifically on the immigration issue it's, it's perhaps even if it doesn't seem obvious at first blush uh, very integral and intertwined with a lot of the debate that the the kneeling on the field invokes which is just this concept of equity right the the chance that anyone should be able to work hard and have a fair shot um, within our borders um, and that requires a, a whole wide tapestry of of policies being updated, reformed, and debated um, in order to ensure that we have diversity in not only our talent pool in America, but diversity in thinking when we when we confront everything from law enforcement actions to hiring who is on the board of a company to how we invest dollars for different school districts that have different racial compositions. All of these different elements of how we structure the great experiment of the United States will inform um, either the divisions that persist in this country or a, a bridge to opportunity. And I think that the only way in which we're able to to recognize a reconciliation of different attitudes and different views on this is to kind of harken back to what you were saying you know, a few moments ago, which is that no one really likes to stand for these sort of divisive rules. I mean, even if someone were to um, – you know, claim that they were actively a race baiting neo Nazi that you know marched a few months ago um, in in West Virginia. The the concept that seems to continuously play out is much more on a fright of opportunity that in some way, shape, or form, people are going to take chances from one another if we 
always live in this sort of framework of the haves and the have-nots or that my job and my ability to put food on the table for my family or even just make a better life for my kids so that way their kids are better off and so on and so forth always has this conviction of you you only get one in sacrifice of another and that one community will be better off but this other community will languish but we all have a responsibility when it comes to constructing America's, you know, identity as well as progress to make sure that we reject that false trade-off and perhaps we can choose both, right? We can both choose the notion of protest while still investing in the community through, you know, micro programs or larger at scale programs. We can reject the notion that people come here for a period of time and that's going to cut something away. And I think, you know, to your point, the namesake of this podcast, a, a line we love to invoke that kind of sums a lot of that up is actually from, you know, the the sitcom from the 90s, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, wherein Carlton uh, you know, the, from from Beverly Hills, grows up in a wealthier dynamic, um, and his cousin Will Smith are you know coming from from Western Philly are rushing a fraternity in college, and and it's a black fraternity, and the frat rejects uh, Carlton and accepts Will because you know they think he's he's a little too country club for them, and he says, you know, black is who I am, not what I'm trying to be, and I think that. A lot of people set these benchmarks um, or measures of expectation of who is black enough, who's patriotic enough, who's American enough, and demand that they meet that through some sort of public commentary or public policy. And that invokes, you know, trying to measure up to that or exceed that bar um, while already a, a failing exercise in the way that we should see our identity creates more of this us versus them mentality. And that can never be healthy unless we honor both sort of. Uh, the free expression to to call that out and point that out and show that how that is hurting ourselves or our communities, but then also to pick up the pieces and say, okay, how how can we advance and get past this false trade off or false narrative? And I think yeah, that's the it, heart to which your point is too. You know, I, do you think this has been caused by our media hungry culture, in which we're constantly bombarded with lots of information and we're forced if not by choice just by the sheer nature of how much information is coming at us to try to decipher it quickly speed read things and therefore captions notions uh, or captions or you know um, words you know uh, quotes names are easily evoked and and stick easily because we are you know we're hungry for information we don't read beyond the the what what may be obvious and and certainly i think that uh in many regards our president is a dream come true for for lots of media people because nobody ever knows what he's going to do he is he is a constant source of a fresh story hate him love him like him not like him whatever it's he's never going to be orthodox he will never ever ever be an orthodox traditional kind of political figure and but 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 from a from a, a real standpoint in terms of what what you know the the cyberbullying and some of the other things we see it seems like the more ways we have to attack each other it seems as if there there are more labels that we fight against and that we we fight hard to keep from from fitting into those narrowly it, it seems that the, the the definitions are becoming more and more narrow rather than being broadened by our ability to express ourselves. I don't I don't know. It it's just I, I question sometimes and I ask myself, how does this happen and when are we as as Americans going to really, really examine this process and say, hey, there are a lot of things we need to fix in our country, and they're not going to be fixed by name-calling and sound bites. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, in, I, I'd love to, to ask your thoughts as we sort of close here, you know, that the same week that the Fo National Football League makes this decision, um, you know, famously in Mil Milwaukee, there was video footage of an NBA player 
uh, named Sterling, Sterling Brown, um, who was confronted by some cops for illegally double parking and was ultimately tased uh, in the process of them questioning the NBA player. And, and Mr. Brown released a statement saying that, you know, situations like mine, you know, of course, alluding to sort of the, the racial undertones of that whole interaction um, are, are getting worse and they happen every day in the black community. Um, in some respects, and, you know, this is my own editorializing here, I believe that that is what um, the kneeling is aiming to draw attention to in the NFL. But in other respects, it, it really underscores what you just said, which is that if we have too many binary labels and too much name calling, particularly in a 24-7 media cycle, we don't really get to a point of building bridges or inroads. So, you know, when we think about the fact that you have spent time not just on the field, but particularly off the field, um, leading congregations at a community church or working with public schools or running for office yourself in New York – how are we and i know this is this is a massive question that we that we're all sort of facing so i know there's no silver bullet answer here but how do you take a moment in time in which what as you said whether you love um president trump or not or you support and stand with officers law enforcement officers in in uniform blue um without sort of question or you question them how do we take all of these different you know, shades of what is appropriate or not appropriate in terms of that cultural commentary, given that and try and build inroads with other people that disagree with us, given that for everyone that maybe disagrees with this president, there were at least 63 million Americans who voted for the gentleman and whose policies we are facing day to day. Is there a way to get past the sort of the name calling, the divisiveness and the, the racial enclaves and start building uh, those those bridges to a more inclusive American identity? And, and have you seen any glimmers of hope as you've been on the campaign trail, as you've seen sermons delivered in church, or you've seen community engagement work uh, for you in a particularly productive way? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, see, I see glimmers of hope. And the glimmers of hope I see are in communities like the, the center, the, the, the uh, urban hope in Philadelphia. Which I'm, I'm I'm part of, and you know, going to be helping them out and moving forward. Um, I I see glimmers of hope in the NFL Alumni Association that is is working hard every single day to break down barriers and build bridges to help players engage in civic responsibility and civic discourse, civic dialogue to make to make a difference, to use their platform and to expand our brand and to use their platform to help build and not tear down. I think we have to one, look for those opportunities and we have to we have to stop looking for, you know, what may be good and be patient enough to wait for what is best. Meaning you know, you know, we, you know, we, we, we have to be willing to work at improving things and and, and at dialoguing. And I would, you know, the, the the changing of election laws. I'll give you this one example: changing of election laws. You know, for years we've been we've been tweaking this on different municipalities, different states, different places, so that normal people can run. So, quote unquote. And it's it's still increasingly difficult. I think bipartisan elections will definitely help, especially in a city like New York, where you have so many divergent points of view, and yet they still keep coalescing around one party. And if one party is the only party that really has true, sincere access to the ballot in, in the sense of the numbers of voters and winning, actually winning elections, then is is the community best served in a system in a one party system? It's very difficult in urban areas. I think we're going to be looking at what's going on in Georgia with a very, very, you know, looking good looking eye to say, okay, wow, this this very popular Democratic, you know, liberal black woman, how how is she going to do in a very conservative Republican led state like Georgia? And is she gonna is she gonna make some headway in terms of the ballot box? So there are lots right, of you're of course talking about Stacey Abrams who Stacey uh, just Abrams, became correct, the party's correct. new nominee. Yeah, correct. You're right, right. 
the, the Democratic nominee. So, so I think that there are lots of different ways we can go about looking at it and approaching it. I have decided that I want to go back to the, you know, the political process that I've engaged in. I don't begrudge anybody. I don't say, I, I you know, I say to, to said to several people, if I had it to do it all over again, I'd probably do the same thing. But I'm just not sure that it was worth all the time and money and, and everything that I put into it other than my own self-advancement. The, the knowledge that I've gained of people and, and, and so forth. I'm not sure that I helped move the dialogue, move the needle, so to speak, in terms of the political dialogue in New York. I'm just not sure that I helped move the needle. And I was hoping to have a bigger impact on that. But you, you, you have that impact when you win and, and you begin to put policies into place. So I, I'm going to be working you know, personally with the, 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 the vehicles that are available to me the things that I have in my in my tool chest in my toolbox, and you know, continuing to advance that those causes and do those things, and with God's help, I will be fruitful and, and helping to to bring people into this discourse of making uh, our society great, you know, and. You know, America is always great, but making our society great because right now we don't we don't reflect the realities of our society with corruption that is in Washington and every state capital in our nation. It, it, it's just very very unfair on the American people. We we're called to a republic that elects officials to do our you know government work, and yet we they. Are, are to report to us, but we don't really trust them. <laughs> you know, once we elect them, we don't really trust them, and then we don't have enough wherewithal to change the, the, the spectrum of what they're doing and so forth. So we've got to be vigilant because, you know, without a democratic process that's fair and available to all and that truly can pick the best of us to lead, we just really are headed for chaos, and I don't believe that. I believe we have to do better, so I'm going to continue to work at, at improving the outcomes of, of elections and getting good people elected, regardless of their political affiliation, as long as they support, you know, I don't say the things, but as long as they support democracy and freedom and a freedom of free voice, there, there are plenty of ways. And, you know, some of the old school politicians, I'll give you one example, then I'm going to I'll shut up. You know, during the Ronald Reagan years, you know, we always say Ronald Reagan was he was a great president. Well, Ronald Reagan was a great president, but Ronald Reagan, we we often forget that on the other side of the aisle, Ronald Reagan had Tip O'Neill, who who might have been one of the very best House speakers that you could ever hope for. Tip could, I mean, talk about horse trading. These two guys, man, they could, they could make it happen, and they did, and they advanced those causes. You know, when when Bill Clinton was was there, he and Newt Gingrich, they were able to do some great things. So you got that quarterback and receiver, you know, connection. We we just have not, you know, this, you know, and during the years of of the. Obama years, you know, it was uh, with a Democratic, you know, controlled Congress. Honestly, they they got very little done. They got very little done, and so you know, sometimes the the, the that tension between parties is a good thing when you have two two actors who want to be engaged in the process of moving things along and getting something done rather than just grandstanding and, you know, posing for the photo ops and making their names great. So I don't know. If yeah, I no, I mean, it's, it's, no, it makes, it makes total sense. And, you know, in, in many respects, I think, you know, that sense of progress is, is sort of core to what this whole conversation has been about, right? Because I, 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 I hear that and I say, well, you know, there was a healthcare deal, there was Wall Street reform, there was student loan reform. But in terms of the progress that works for every American that extends beyond just, you know, federal 
uh, legislation and really just micro targets communities um, at the very granular level at the the corner block level um, unless we start to see that then you know we will constantly be fighting for and, and thirsty for even more but I think if anything showed us um, where that action can come from and emanate from this week alone uh, symbolize that it can come from more places than just Washington, as you said. It can come from more places than just being an elected official. It can even come from a public debate sparked by a sports franchise, you know, and that that's a hell of a thing in terms of America's identity, that being able to inform it, tweak it, push back on it, and remold our narrative as a people and as a country can really come from a litany of, of channels, voices, and people, some that are household names, and some whose names we haven't even heard yet. And I have a feeling that uh, even though you feel you were dating yourself by claiming that you the last time you played on the field was in the 1980s, I have a very strong feeling that um, this is just the beginning of, of your voice, Michael Faulkner, on these issues of community as well as, as progress that we all want to strive towards. So um, I imagine we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more of you uh, in the in the time to come. But thank you so much for, for your candor and your perspective and for joining American Enough. Vikram, you are very welcome, and I look forward to the next opportunity when we can dialogue about these things. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.